Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Mike Pointer, and you're listening to the Heredity Podcast. One of the biological consequences of globalization is the introduction of alien species to parts of the world where they become invasive. This can happen accidentally, like with rats stowing away on ships, or it can be intentional. Think Australian cane toads. Whatever the cause, the result is very often that native biodiversity suffers the consequences. It's no wonder then that there's a lot of interest in understanding how these introductions happen and in controlling the species with the worst effects. Today's guests have a new paper in Heredity which uses genomics to trace the colonisation history of the common miner, a bird that's invasive across much of the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Good evening from me, and good morning to the two of you in New Zealand. Would you start by telling us a bit about yourselves? Kia ora, hello from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, my name is Anna Sancher and I'm Associate Professor in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Auckland. Um, I am originally from the South Island of New Zealand and I studied down at the University of Otago uh, before heading to the UK to do postdocs at the University of uh, Sheffield and Zoological Society of London and then uh, returned here to Aotearoa, New Zealand around nine and a half years ago to take up a lecturing position at Auckland. Hi, my name is or A. I am um, originally from Thailand and um, did my bachelor's and my master's in the UK. I spent a couple of years working in the UK before I uh, took up this PhD position at the University of Auckland under the supervision of Anna Sancher, Annabelle Whibley and Professor Kane. Great. So let's start off broadly. Would you tell us a bit about the study system? Yeah, great. So um, actually one really striking feature I noted when I moved back to New Zealand with these common miners that have a, a lot of attitude. So common miners are invasive in New Zealand, uh, but they're not actually present in the South Island. So it was a really new feature for me um, coming back to live in Auckland. Um, they've got a wee bit of a supervillain vibe. They've got a black head, but these sort of yellow goggles around their eyes that make them look a little bit villain-like. Um, and yeah, I just became really intrigued by the idea of their introduction and how they'd done so well here in New Zealand, particularly in the North Island of New Zealand, from their original range in in Southeast Asia. Um, So common miners have been introduced to a lot of places across the world, and they're particularly problematic for offshore islands and, and island systems such as New Zealand that have really high levels of endemic species Uh, that they interact with. Uh, They can interfere with breeding of other birds. Uh, They can act aggressively to other birds and they're a really significant impact on on native insects and and other things that they eat in our environment. So thinking about that process of invasion is really interesting from an evolutionary genetics perspective. So we were really thinking about that process of invasion in terms of a series of bottlenecks from the original source population to eventually ending up in Aotearoa, New Zealand. 
And that bottlenecking, of course, reduces genetic diversity. And how do they then manage to adapt in potentially really new environments um, for New Zealand, in particular a lot cooler environment compared to Southeast Asia? And we've seen uh, in some kind of historic research that there's been morphological adaptation to this new environment. So, yeah, just thinking about that process of adaptation. So that's where the, where the project really started uh, in terms of understanding uh, the process of adaptation from a really bottlenecked population. Uh, for me, it was, a, it was a bird that's close to my heart in the sense that it's native where I'm originally from in Thailand. Or it's, I realized later on that it's actually a, a natural range expansion from in the native range at a similar time in which it was introduced to New Zealand. And it was one of the first birds I, I saw uh, when I got into bird watching when I was younger with my mum. So uh, <laughs> when I saw the PhD. Um... Yeah, they're a great looking bird. But really that super villain mask they wear is a clue to their nature, right? Because they're very territorial and aggressive to other species. David Richardson, my supervisor, has stories about them killing warblers in the Seychelles to get at their eggs. And that all means that there's a lot of interest in learning about them in order to manage them. And so what were your aims with this study? So the specific aims in the study would be to, to identify the population structure in New Zealand and then trace the introduction history of the miners um, relevant to New Zealand. Yeah, I guess um, that's in the context of us having a fairly good idea already that the New Zealand birds had been introduced from Australia. So they weren't direct from the native range in India. Um, and that those Australian birds likely were introduced um, from India. So uh, that was part of the big sort of acclimatisation societies of both Australia and New Zealand to introduce species from outside the countries uh, into Australia and New Zealand as, I guess, part of the colonisation process, really, to, in some cases, make those countries feel a bit more like home, uh, but in other cases to act as sort of biological controls so uh, for miners in particular, uh, they were introduced to both Australia and New Zealand to try and control grain pests. And since then, they've, they've obviously gone on. They ended up a bit of a pest themselves. Um, so, yeah, so we sort of had that context in mind when thinking about this paper and, and uh, thought it would be really interesting to try and uh, trace those introductions of common miner in New Zealand back through Australia. Uh, from We weren't sure about the possible source population or populations in Australia, um, but then ideally back to India as well. It sounds like that must have required a large sampling effort. So what samples did you have and how did you come by them? Um, so we've been incredibly fortunate actually to um, have these wonderful collaborators at uh, Australian Museum in Sydney um, that had gathered a very huge data set of Australian miners and had published on that population structure within Australia already. Uh, that was work led by Carl Ewart at, at Australian Museum. Um, so he very kindly, uh, along with his uh, his supervisory team, were, were keen to share those samples with us. Uh, but we also had access to sort of global samples from across their distribution um, particularly in the Pacific, so samples from Fiji and Hawaii, but uh, also uh, samples from the native range in India, uh, which had been collected in sort of the late 1970s, 1980s, and were held at the Royal Ontario Museum in Canada. Um, and then in combination with that, there were actually some samples at the Royal Ontario Museum in Canada from New Zealand as well, from Alan's collections in New Zealand. Uh, but we were also able to gather quite a large number of samples from very kind local individuals who control miners basically on their own property or as part of habitat restoration um, across 
across the North Island of New Zealand. So, um, yeah, people that have been doing their own control efforts sort of sent us bodies in the post and we've been able to extract DNA from all of those. So, uh, yeah, it's been a wonderful combination of samples in the 1980s, 1970s, um, and there's more recent uh, samples that we we were able to get from very kind uh, individuals here in New Zealand. We may have also had some roadkills, did we? <laughs> oh, that's true. Few roadkills. Yeah. As well as control efforts, there's been a few samples sort of pancaked on the road that have been um, scraped off for us and, and sent to us. <laughs> I'm sure it's what they would have wanted. So you've got your samples at this point. What kind of sequencing did you do? So it was done with DartSeq sequencing method to be in line with the study led by Kyle Ewart in 2019 on the Australian miners. And that way we were able to uh, analyze our data, uh, process our data together. And that was the main reason why we used the DartSeq data. And then we um, we have a reference genome, thanks to my other supervisor, uh, Annabelle Whibley. Dart also um, identified the SNPs, the Novo, and then mapped it to the reference genome. That's called using Dart's um, own proprietary SNP calling pipeline. But we also align the reads to the reference genome and call the SNPs ourselves using the Stacks pipeline. So we um, performed analysis on three different pipelines to see if they, they show the same signals. We performed um, PCA, the population structure based using SNMF analysis. And then we looked into the site frequency spectrum and some genetic diversity metrics. May have skipped some parts on filtering, but... Well, it's actually great that you've mentioned filtering because that takes me on to something I really wanted to ask you about. One of the reasons that we were keen to feature your paper on this episode is that the editorial team were really impressed with the way that you presented your bioinformatics methods. They're super meticulous and thorough, but without being a slog to read. And they give a really clear idea of how you thought through each test and how you filtered your SNPs in a way that suited that analysis. So I'm interested to know whether that was something that you were actively going for when writing up this paper. I, I guess it's by chance as well. I mean, I, I was trying to do my best with the, with the methods because I was worried about the introduction history because the introduction history is quite, it has been introduced, I think, over 10 times in New Zealand. And I was worried that I'll miss out some things. So I tried to keep it as clear as possible. And that's how I got there. But we were just trying to keep it as clear um, and not, not include too much um, convoluted analysis, maybe. Well, I think that's far too modest. It's not that you haven't included convoluted analysis. It's that what you have done is really clearly explained and that you can follow exactly what you did and understand the logic of it. When I'm writing those things, I fall into a trap of thinking, oh, this is dense. People don't want to read this. And then I don't make it comprehensive as I should or as comprehensive as is probably useful as the reader. It's probably because I was quite new to genetics. My background, I did some genetics, but it wasn't it wasn't my bread and butter. I came into this position and, and Anna Annabelle helped me a lot. And then I was probably able to look at it from the view of someone who has not had a lot of experience. And therefore, I had to be able to explain it to myself to be able to explain it to, uh, to others. Well, you've done an excellent job. And I'm going to be looking back at this paper next time I'm writing up some methods. So you've got your variant sites. What analysis did you do to try and pick out the patterns of colonization history? I was trying to pick out populations that are highly related to each other. And um, actually, that was mainly through the 
population pairwise FST metrics. And um, I was trying to compare it back with the historical record to see the congruency between the two. That was the main things I was trying to pick out. Okay, so now we get to the juicy bit. What did you find out? Um, I guess the biggest surprise for me was finding that there is population structure in New Zealand for the miners. appears to be divided by the North Island Axel Mountain Range, which was quite a surprise because I thought that it was all over New Zealand and that it would be all one, one big blob. That was quite a surprise. And it turns out that it's somewhat linked to the introduction history as well, that Anna mentioned previously. The birds in so in the North Island, the, the, the birds are divided into one population, which is east of the North Island Axel Mountain Range, and the other population being west of the North Island Axel Mountain Range. The, their story of invasion in New Zealand is quite interesting, though. They, they've been described as being introduced into the main centres, which at that time... Uh, was sort of uh, in the South Island, Dunedin and Christchurch, and then a few centres in the North Island. And they're only now found in the North Island. And so we were really curious as to um, what happened to them in the South Island. Um, and so Annika Beasley, who was a, yeah, an undergraduate student actually at the time, uh, and did a summer research project with our group, um, was able to use these these records from newspaper clippings and, and sort of acclimatisation society records uh, to kind of look at where people were mentioning where and when people were mentioning these miners. Um, so the miners that are present in Auckland actually um, are a result of sort of a pulsing upwards of minor introductions from further south in New Zealand. Um, and all of the all of the um, populations, it seems, in the South Island just sort of naturally died out um, and didn't invade anywhere else. Um, so, yeah, so there's been a really interesting, yeah, kind of, invasion of, of miners heading northwards in the North Island of New Zealand, which, which becomes warmer. Um, and actually a little bit with, I guess, with climate change, uh, we're seeing a little bit now of a pulsing downwards from the mid um, of the North Island and further south um, as, as we have sort of warmer winters and so on. So that was our first main finding with regards to the population structure in New Zealand. And the other finding was that miners in New Zealand likely came from Melbourne. We found the miners from Melbourne to cluster very closely with a subset of samples from Maharashtra in India. So that was very interesting. That, that suggests that the birds from Melbourne likely came from that subset. It's quite new because while I was doing this, uh, Annika was also doing her historical records. So we were kind of doing this separate, separately, but we were kind of aware of each other in the, in the back of our heads. And um, she's found at a similar time, I guess, came to a similar conclusion where the majority of birds or the, all of the birds with confirmed origins were from either Melbourne or from Victoria. So it's out there, I guess. So um, it's not novel in the sense that if you actually look through the old newspapers, you you will, I guess you will be able to find similar information. I really like this dual approach. It has an air of the detective novel about it, using DNA evidence to confirm witness testimony. Hey, did, did you also want to mention, I think the um, the structure in Australia is quite interesting too, because um, when they just had Australian samples, it looked like there is quite a lot of structure in Australia, and it looked like they might have come from separate regions in India, but I think your work again shows that they're probably all from the same region. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
So this is more to do with Kyle Erich's study in Australia. So this is from 2019, and he identified the population structure in, in Australia. And this his summary was that there were three main introduction points in Australia, but he was unable to identify the source in India because he had no samples from there. The study was unable to identify, um, differentiate between an introduction from within Australia or all three introduction points coming from the native range. And in this study, because we have we have data from a few locations in India, we it looks like um, the birds within Australia are likely also founded by birds from Melbourne. It looks looks like it, anyways. The other finding being that birds in Fiji likely also came from the same source that founded Melbourne, and then the birds in South Africa and Hawaii likely coming um, from another subset of Indian the Indian populations. Really nice results and especially cool that they tally with the historical records. I suppose that's good evidence that they aren't really getting between land masses under their own steam. What would you like people to take away from the paper or from listening to this conversation? I guess that for me, um, the fact that the forest and the mountains in the North Island being um, various to gene flow and that its forest and mountains should probably be used to define management units. I think the wonderful thing from, from this paper has been incorporating those museum samples um, to give us that, that broader context, on, particularly on the in, original source populations that these invasive populations came from. Um, so I think that's, yeah, that resources that's available in these long-term collections and museums is just fabulous um, for putting context on histories of threatened species as well as invasive species, actually. So it's a wonderful record um, record of the past there that we can we can go back and look at. Um, so we're very, very grateful that um, Royal Ontario Museum was happy to share those with us. Yeah, absolutely. Now that sequencing from older samples has become more accessible, more and more studies are utilising it. And this paper is a great example of how it can work. Thanks for coming to tell us about it. And with that, would you remind us of the title of the paper and give a shout out to anybody who deserves one for their work on it? The title of the paper is Tracing the Introduction of Invasive Common Miners Using Population Genomics. I'd actually like to mention Annabelle Wibley, my supervisor, who um, made the reference genome, and she helped me throughout all the early stages of the analysis of, um, of the PhD. Also, I'd like to shout out to all the co-authors, Kyle Ewert, Rebecca Johnson, Richard Major from the Australian side, and um, Kat Stewart and Leanne Rollins um, for all the talks, conversations about the miners, and uh, Annika Beasley's work on the historical records, which is really uh, very nice. That was today's main feature. Now, a quick mention of a couple of papers that I've particularly enjoyed recently. One of the effects of climate warming is to drive species distributions to higher elevation, as the range tracks areas of suitable climate. Populations at the leading edge of range expansions are likely to encounter novel conditions and require adaptive responses. But things like becoming isolated and potentially inbred are predicted to hamper their ability to evolve. A new paper from Cisternas Fuentes and Koski tests these hypotheses by looking at ecological and genetic data from a common herbaceous plant across a thousand meter elevational gradient. Using RADSEQ, they show that plants have more recently colonized high elevation areas and that those populations are smaller, more isolated, and more inbred than those lower in the valley. Interestingly, the authors also showed that higher elevation plants had greater clonal potential, which may contribute to these genetic patterns. 
Overall, their results fit the theory that adaptive potential may be reduced in populations shifting their range in response to climate. While we know that biodiversity is high in certain ecosystems, such as tropical rainforest, we know much less about the evolutionary forces creating this diversity. A new paper from Katie Gates and her co-authors addresses this question using the eastern rainbow fish, which shows high morphological diversity across several river systems in Queensland, Australia. Their results show that while neutral variation in genomic data could be explained by population structure, the overall genetic patterns and the morphological variation were best explained by environmental differences between sampling sites. It seems that local adaptation to both temperature and to the hydrology of their habitat has shaped the evolution of these populations. You can read everything mentioned today on the Heredity website at nature.com forward slash hdy. And while you're there, you can also check out how to submit your own papers to the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm Mike Pointer. Thanks very much for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.